Joined on the line from Toronto and the University of Toronto Scarborough campus by psychology professor Steve Jordans, here to talk to us this morning about the psychology of denial. Professor Jordans, Steve, good morning and welcome to our show, sir. Thank you. Very nice to be with you, Sterling. Well, it's a pleasure. Now, let me just roll this uh, paragraph uh, off the top end of the new survey from Insights West released just Friday afternoon, Steve. So this is super fresh stuff. Here we go. 37% of Canadians believe COVID-19 was created in a lab and released by mistake. 31% that COVID-19 was created as a biological weapon in a lab. 15% that Big Pharma helped spread the virus. 9% that the virus includes a chip that will track people. 6% that there's a link between COVID-19 and 5G. In comparison, Steve, 36% believe Princess Diana was assassinated. 33% believe any of the JFK conspiracy theories. And 31% believe that a, there is a cure for cancer that has been found but not released. 29 that humans have been cloned we believe a lot of strange things and 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 i suppose the question to you the psychology professor early in the morning is what causes us to go to believe in things that under many uh, perhaps different circumstances steve we would consider weird yeah absolutely yeah i mean i, mean, I think the first sort of start to thinking about these sorts of things is to realize that we're really two people. Um, the primitive parts of us, the, the most the sort of core of who we are, are emotional and instinctual. And we've got the sort of new kids in town in, in our brain, and that's the frontal lobes. And so that's the part that, you know, we as humans have developed a lot. That's where we do all of our rational thinking, our strategizing. Uh, but it's the new kid in town, uh, and it really is. And, and many times it can simply be taken over by the much more emotional, instinctive side of us that's worried about things like survival. Mm -hmm. uh, and at times when anxiety is high, and let's face it, anxiety has been high even before COVID, I think we could say, but certainly over a year, um, that's when the emotional side really starts to have more power than it would normally have. Uh, we literally have less blood flowing to our frontal lobes when we're in a chronically stressed state, uh, mm -hmm. and it makes it harder for us to think logically and rationally, and we start thinking with our fears and our emotions, and, and I think that's why we're seeing so much of this paranoia, which is what it really is. Yeah, you know, and I've been talking, Steve, for a very long time, and, and of course, I've been on the radio through this whole pandemic and stuff, but it started about, gosh, I'd say at least six months ago, when we started recognizing a phenomenon on this program, and we've guests from all over Canada and all over the world on the weekends, uh, I started talking about pandemic fatigue, Steve. Yes. And, and this is six months ago when uh, and we'd been through the most severe of the lockdowns. We were probably in a second phase by then. Uh, the yep. Prime Minister comes on television every morning. Half the country immediately changes the channel. Doesn't matter what the announcement is. Don't care. Don't want to hear anymore. Uh, yep. Same with Doug Ford. Uh, and, and, you know, go through the various premiers and officers of health across the country who come on every day with this endless cycle of numbers and sincere expressions. And we sort of look at this. The numbers go through our mind, go in one ear and out the other. And we don't see any change, so we kind of tune them out. Is this making sense yeah. to you? Which is that? Which lobe are we talking about here? Well, I mean, they are speaking to our frontal lobes, and and it is it's sort of a um, 
I don't know, an, an illusion we all share that we are more rational than emotional. <laughs> so we kind of believe ourselves. Every act we do, we believe that we do it for a rational reason. But in True, fact, yeah. as advertisers show us, you know, when they, when they try to advertise products and stuff to us, they seldom tell us the rational reason to buy their product. Instead, mm-hmm. they associate it with attractive people doing adventurous things um, and, you know, all this positivity they can put around it because they know it's the emotion and connecting their product to the emotionality that at that time of the decision, that's what will determine what we do. Uh, and so this is where I kind of think, you know, we've missed the boat a little bit where we've all the leaders have been trying to use these numbers and, and pummeling yes. us with the numbers and the facts and the logic and the science. Um, I really think we're missing the boat by not talking enough to the limbic system. Uh, some people say I'm, I'm a fear monger when I say this, but, but what I like to, to say is, you know, if there's a grizzly bear out there and you're telling somebody, hey, you really shouldn't poke the bear because stuff will happen, you know, you're just trying to teach them a healthy respect for the, the danger that's out there. And I think sure. so many of us with COVID, because the consequences are abstract and in the future, humans aren't good at, at thinking about that very well. And we need to hear some of these emotional human stories from people who made what seemed like seemingly innocent decisions, you know, to go have a beer with some friends or something like that, but that ended up having a horrific consequence for them. And if they tell that story about how it happened, then when we get invited for that beer, we're not going to rationally go back and go, oh, what was that story? Oh, yeah. It'll just be there, and, and sure. it'll trigger that sort of emotional, you know, ooh, that's potentially dangerous. And I think we need to be talking a lot more in emotional terms and human terms and, and lessen all this data-heavy stuff. Okay, well, let's let's just go back to, again, 13, 14 yep. months ago when all of this was beginning to develop and we knew we had a crisis on our hands and, and the leadership was trying to, however, slowly, painfully, slowly become aware of what was going on themselves before they figured yep. it out uh, enough to be able to even talk to us about it. That cost a lot of lives, ultimately. Yep. What I'm curious about here, Professor Jordans, is that at the, be- at the outset of all of this, the reaction around the world was quite different. For example, in some parts of Europe, and other parts of the world, it was treated very seriously. We saw tremendous crisis in Italy right away and so on. And yet here in North America, particularly in the United States, the initial reaction was denial, absolute denial. This couldn't possibly be happening to us. You know, I'm the president. I need a successful run to be reelected. And that's all I care about. This is a hoax. This is nonsense. And so uh, that, that was the tone established by the leadership at the outset of the pandemic. Now, not everyone went, oh, of course it's a hoax. A lot of people went, what are you talking about? Take a look (laughs) at the science. But it gave permission, Steve, to an awful lot of people to go, this is rubbish. Yeah, and, and almost for the same reason. You know, when you look at the president, you say, oh, I have, I have other priorities. I have, you know, the, the next um, election that I want to focus on, etc. You know, similarly with a lot of human beings, that uh, when we think about denial, you know, let's go to the classic case of a, of a funeral situation. You know, that, that denial that happens is somebody who can't quite come to terms with life without that person. Sure. They can't quite get their head there. Uh, and so rather than go there, they, the easier path is to say, you know, I'm not going to accept the death. And I think a lot of us, you know, really when COVID was starting, had a lot of trouble imagining what this was going to do to us. And and we didn't have a good sense of it, but we knew it was going to get in the way of, you know, all of our plans and all of our, our notion of how to live. And I think there was a lot of people that felt they just could not come to terms with that 
either. And, and there's a weird thing in psychology. They, they sometimes call it the foot in the door or you're in for a dime, you're in for a dollar. Once you start down a path of, yeah. say, denial, it gets harder and harder to just at some point say, oh, okay, I was wrong, uh, and flip back. We have this thing called cognitive dissonance that says, you know, once you start to firmly believe in something, then in order to just give it up, you have to kind of say, okay, I was an idiot. And none of us are comfortable with doing that. So once people kind of start following a path of denial, and especially if they have some social support from others, um, they will tend to stick to that pretty hard. And that's what we're seeing now is, you know, it's one thing for these people to have believed this stuff, perhaps in a moment of, you know, fear or paranoia, but it's like, come on, there's a year of data. We need yeah. you on our team here. Can you please come and, and help us? And we're seeing how hard it is to get them back on site. And yeah, here's, here's sentence one from the poll released just Friday afternoon. A new poll by Insights West finds that various COVID-19 conspiracy theories are believed by a sizable minority of Canadians across the country at levels that rival many conspiracy theories that have been circulating for decades. In other words, and I think in terms of the the uh, rise in popularity and, and the numbers involved, Steve, I think reflect the, the, the reality of social media in the mm-hmm. ability to circulate and participate in conspiracy theories, unlike uh, any of the previous, uh, the Kennedy stuff, the Princess Die stuff. We didn't have the kind of social media uh, communications cap- capacity that we do now. Yeah, and the important sort of facet of that for people to kind of realize is that, you know, pre-social media, Everything that got onto a newscast um, or, or in a newspaper or whatever, there was a firm vetting process, and, and yeah. the paper in question or whoever, you know, would feel great shame if they were publishing things that subsequently turned out to be inaccurate, uh, and so they were very worried about the accuracy of their information. Whereas in social media, nobody is vetting anything, and in fact, people are intentionally creating uh, misleading things that look like news articles. And yes. so our brain has sort of been programmed through the years to think, okay, news, if, if it sounds like news, it's credible. Um, and we've been able to kind of trust those vetting processes to, to make that so. But social media just blows that away. And so suddenly there's widespread sharing, echo chambers of people who are kind of feeling the same way. And it can be all just seeded by, you know, a Russian government or anybody else who just wants to put out some misleading truths out there and make them as sort of sexy and tantalizing as you can so that people will consume them and feel the need to share them. And that's why we see so many of these have these salacious elements, too, that, you know, try to capture the imagination of people, whether it's, you know, pedophile shops under pizzerias or whatever. Those are the kind of things that grab people's attention and go, what? And then when they read it, they can't believe it, but rather than not believing it, (laughs) they share it. Uh, and, And then you get this widespread uh, spreading of these these mistruths. We're speaking with psychology professor Steve Jordans from the University of Toronto's Department of Psychology on their Scarborough campus. He's the director of the Alt Lab, and we're talking about well, vaccine vaccine hesitation, uh, COVID denial. There's a new theory, or a new rather. Uh, 
survey published by the Insights West People released on Friday afternoon under the headline, Significant Minority of Canadians Believe COVID-19 Misinformation, Rivaling Long-Established Conspiracy Theories. And Steve, here's a, a, a final comment from the president of Insights West, the, the outfit that conducted this poll. Steve Mossop had this to say, quote, It is unfortunate that the pandemic has resulted in a wide array of conspiracy circulating that are believed uh, by believed by a sizable number of Canadians, not by a fringe alternative segment of society. The proliferation of these theories has been exacerbated by the shareability of their views on social media, which you and I touched on, which has elevated conspiracy theories to perhaps as high as it's ever been in today's world. I believe the vaccine hesitancy we're seeing in this country now can be widely attributed to these swirling conspiracy theories, much to the detriment of stopping this virus. Close quote. That is the problem. And and Steve, I suppose the, the most difficult uh, thing for a lot of people to to wrap their heads around when they, they see the anti-maskers and the anti-vaxxers and the COVID deniers. I mean, uh, the evidence, and you've said yourself a couple of times here, look, we're 14 months into this. There's just a ton of, of evidence and an abundance of science. And, and if you're watching television on the nightly news and you're seeing India, where families are burning dead people in the city streets because there are no, there's nothing else to do with them. I mean, how could you possibly possibly say this is a hoax it's the evidence is so powerful and yet they maintain their position talk to us about maintaining that position in the face of such daunting evidence yeah well i, I mean i have to say i have a family member who, who's in this boat and the first thing that family member will say to me is turn off your television uh, so that's step one of their playbook is is deny all of the information coming from reputable, reliable sources and instead only trust this subset of information they have deemed credible. Um, and, and that's the worry. And so there's sort of two psychological principles that are relevant here. One that is called the mere exposure effect, which is just that idea that the more often you hear something, the more likely you believe it's true. And uh -huh. in fact, you know, even... Even pre any of this, if we think about, you know, how much did the general public really understand science, they probably didn't understand it. It's just the science they were being exposed to was accurate, uh, and therefore they were hearing it, and they were believing it, and everything was great because they were believing accurate science. Um, mm. The real change has been this infusion of false narratives that have that have come primarily through social media but it's that same mechanism you see it pop up on your feed five times from five different sources and it starts to feel like it must be true uh, and so that's very one very powerful thing and, and the other one is this notion that we call uh, cognitive dissonance. Um, I'll tell you the very famous story really shortly. The guy who was interested in it found somebody who said the world was going to end in, I don't know what she said, two weeks or something, and she convinced all these followers to sell everything they owned uh, because she had talked to aliens that were going to take them off the planet just before this happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were interested, what are these people going to do after that date? Uh, you know, surely they're going to say, man, I was stupid. I was an idiot for believing this person. But that date came and gone. And when the uh, researcher went back to talk to them, they were more entrenched than ever. They believed the aliens had gotten the date wrong and they were uh -huh. rescheduling. But they, you know, people become highly resistant to 
sort of changing of view once they've made it a big part of themselves. And, and that's another part with these deniers. It's, it's become their defining characteristic, you know, what their belief system and, and their life sort of, you know, they become really insistent on spreading this um, very strongly as well and kind of living it. And I think that's what scares a lot of family members and such. Well, yeah, and, and uh, it's, it's interesting that you're 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 going through this on on a very personal level as well, Steve. But you know, I, I, I the the dominant emotion you're talking about, and you're talking about the the two the different lobes of our brain and how we yep. uh, process information and how we accept some and not others, uh, et cetera. But uh, uh, the the emotion that seems to dominate the anti-vaxxer, anti-mask, it's all a bloody hoax movement, Steve, is anger. These people are really, really angry. Yeah, uh, it it does seem that way. And, you know, the other part of that is when you're angry, when you're experiencing any negative emotion, the social connections we have become really important. So if you have others around you that are angry with you, um, that share your anger, then to some extent, you know, we have this concept, brothers in arms, um, that idea that when you're in a fight with somebody, you tend to grow connected to that person. And, you know, our our hope is that we would have all treated the virus as the common enemy and that we would have all been getting together and really kind of coming together as humanity to, to fight what we all, or most of us, see as the real enemy. But when we literally have this division in our ranks, you know, A, it's puzzling for the reasons we discussed, but the other thing that you hit on earlier is it's dangerous because if Mm -hmm. we cannot get some of these anti-vaxxers on board, then they're going to become the breeding ground for the new variants. And if one of those variants beats the vaccine, then it's because of them that we will all be back where where we were. Uh, And so now it's become a problem where those of us who just want to say they're kind of nuts, well, yeah, but we got to find a way to to get them on board. Uh, It's now a problem we all share where we have to try to understand it and we have to try to find a sensitive way to get them to to change their views and that will not be easy. Well, because there's a mathematical reality attached to all of this in terms of achieving herd immunity. We need to achieve a certain percentage of the population completely inoculated in order to to, to be uh, less fearful about the arrival of new variants going forward. And the only way to achieve that herd herd immunity is to hit that certain magic percentage number, Steve, whatever it is, 70, 75. And we're not going to get there until we get uh, enough people on side to do that so what sort of messaging this is critical because all of these people who come on and just uh, they sit down and and they go to the podium and they start off with their well here are today's covid numbers and uh, instantly your eyes glaze over you you stop caring and 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 no matter what happens after that uh, they've lost you you, you've already tuned them out. So how do you get past that? How do you get those people capable of being recognized as as effective, credible messengers to change their tune and start speaking to the people they need to, to get to in real terms? Yeah, and, you know, I don't know how directly they need to do it, and I don't know if it needs to be the political leaders, but I can give you a couple of examples. There was a couple of times, here in Ontario at least, when Doug Ford... Um, it, when it, where it was less about what he was saying, and, and it was much more about his facial expression and his emotionality. There was a couple of times he came out scared, and, mm-hmm. and you could see he had just seen some new projections, and he was scared. 
And both my wife and I, when we watched that, we're like, whoa, something, something is different. So forget the numbers, feel that feeling. And, and that's what we need more of is, right. is the emotionality. Uh, and so I really, really, I, there's a great ad for um, distracted driving, cell phone driving that um, I share to people when I'm trying to make this point. Uh, but but there's, a, there's a time when hearing those human stories, hearing from a human who said, you know, and, and I would imagine ads on, on radio, on whatever, where, you know, I had this opportunity to do something that was, I always loved doing it pre-pandemic. I did it. It seemed like fun, blah, blah, blah. We went there. People weren't wearing masks. Talk tell the story, but then, you know, end up by saying, and I brought this virus home and, and my father died alone mm-hmm. in a hospital because I had to go for that beer. And and if the person says it in an honest, authentic way, because they're telling a true story and they feel it, those are the, those are the messages we need now. We need to understand that the, the danger that's out there is is not some little wimpy kind of thing. It's It's a serious danger and we owe it to each other to get past it. Uh, and, and so I think that emotional stuff has to come through. The, the words, we, I, I don't think we're going to convince people with words and logic. We're not going to convince an anti-vaxxer. But, you know, things like, here's another example. In Toronto, we're seeing lineups for vaccines yes. on TV. That's a powerful psychological stimulus. You know, that, that suggests scarcity. It suggests a desire. That speaks to our emotional brain. And our mm. emotional brain sees that just like the lineups for the new Apple phone. And it says, oh, a lot of people want that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of other people think this is a great idea. Uh, and at a very you know, emotional level, that can push a person a whole lot more than, than words can. And in fact, the words can push them away from it. Uh, so I think we need to get emotional. We need to get limbic system. That's how we're going to get through, I think, the next four or five months to get to that you know, herd immunity spot. Professor Jordan's uh, final question to you, Steve, and we're grateful for your time today. Are you optimistic we'll get there? I am. I mean, the one fear I always have, we hear about this double variance and stuff, is is something will jump the vaccine. And so I think we have to get our act together before that happens. But as long as we can prevent that happening, then I, I like to think of planning Christmas <laughs> for this year. Start your plans. Imagine your family coming together. Start looking forward to all that. I think we will be clear by Christmas as long as, yeah, we can get some of this stuff buttoned down. Well, that's an interesting approach. Look, look, long horizon approach. Plan for yeah. Christmas. That's a good job. Thanks, Steve, thanks very much for this. It's wonderful to have you on our program this morning. Uh, a very fine conversation, and I'd like the opportunity to do it again uh, down the road somewhere. That'd be great, Sterling. I'd appreciate that. Professor Steve Jordans from the Department of Psychology at the University of Toronto's Scarborough campus this morning. He's also director of the Alt Lab. And we're talking a little baseball for a few minutes here on CKNW Weekend Mornings. A pleasure to welcome Professor Remy Elitzur from the University of Toronto. He's a mathematics professor who wrote a piece in the conversation recently entitled Pandemic Moneyball, How COVID-19 Has Affected Baseball Odds. Professor Elitzur, Remy, good morning and welcome. Good morning. I'm not a professor of mathematics. I'm a professor of financial analysis, but that's okay. Oh, my apologies, sir. Mathematical stuff. 
and 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 like me you also identify yourself in the article as being a baseball fan and i'm a big fan of the movie moneyball as well and in that movie uh, for those of us who didn't know uh, the story before it 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 was the explanation of how a very low budget team like the Oakland A's managed to uh, succeed because of their uh, embracing the analytics of baseball and so tell us the story uh, pick it up from there if you will Remy please because I'm curious how that has uh, worked its way into COVID-19 excellent question but uh, let me start with the beginning um, in 1987, 88, I think, uh, the Oakland A's were owned by the Haas family, who owned also Levi's, and they were doing well. Mm -hmm. And during that time, anything could be spent on anybody. And then ownership changed, and they realized uh, that the new owners are not going to let them spend on anything. so Sandy Alderson, which is actually the originator of Moneyball, and Billy Bean decided to look at things differently. So they said, instead of looking at people visually, uh, we are going to look at data, sure. which was revolutionary yeah. at the time. So anybody who saw the movie, by the way, the book is way better. Um, there is like a, a scout, they ask him about the player, and he said, I'm not going to take this player. They said, how come? And he says... Well, you know, he has a, an ugly girlfriend. I said, so why is it relevant? I said, if, he, if he has an ugly girlfriend, he's not going to have self-confidence. So the point was, it really doesn't matter what is confidence or who is he dating or how does it look. The question is, what can he do for us? Sure, and, exactly. And that's a, sorry. So, so now, in that see- sense, they start to look at data. And right. they had huge advantage on the rest of the teams in the league. There were a few other teams that were following this idea. And then basically an extinction level event happened. And that's the publication of the book. The book mm-hmm. suddenly revealed to the rest of the league, the secret sauce. And that's so it right. is one thing to be a moneyball team. It's another to be a moneyball team with money, because if you have the money, you can actually poach on players and more importantly, uh, front office people. And so if you look at the last several years, the teams that actually win uh, the World Series are all wealthy teams who use Moneyball. What happened mm. during COVID is like the rich got richer and the poor got poorer because one of the major uh, sources of income to these poorer teams is, is the gate money, the tickets. And they right. didn't sell any tickets. And they didn't have much reserves. So if you actually take a look at the richer teams, they have other sources of income. They have more financial resources. And what happened is that many of the poorer teams basically gave up even before the season started. Mm-hmm. So that's how yeah. it all related to. So one, they lost the advantage because of the book. Two, COVID made it even worse. 
And you're saying that uh, and one of the conclusions you draw towards the end of your article is it's a tough time to be a small market team in baseball. The money ball advantage is gone. COVID-19 has reduced revenue. And without a big payroll, it's almost impossible to succeed. The the the, the problem with the money ball uh, whole scenario, uh, Remy, was that they let the cat out of the bag. They shared the small market, low budget secret with the with the teams that have money and basically took themselves out of the game didn't they? That's an excellent observation. I, I always wondered why did they do that? And I remember that I talked, I presented my academic paper a few years ago and I said, why would he do that? So one of the points that was made in the presentation is it all depends what you want. If you want to be rich and famous and hang out, you know, with superstars uh, movie superstars, then publishing the book was great. If mm-hmm. your intention was to win Major League Baseball, you know, holy grail, that doesn't work. And in, indeed, after the book came out, you could see that the advantage of these teams uh, that were using Moneyball got eroded. Now, look, Andrew Friedman went from the Tampa Bay uh, Rays he went to the Dodgers. The Dodgers have been in three out of the last four series. Sure. Because, A, the money ball, but they're also super rich. That's right. Uh, that's a pretty potent combination. Uh, final question to you this morning, Remy, and it's a real pleasure to have you on a nice change of topic for a Sunday morning. How optimistic are you about the Toronto Blue Jays this year? They had a, a pretty good season. They've got a strong, young, talented core, and now they're starting to add those extra ingredients. How uh, how optimistic are you they're going to do well this year? So... Um... They have some superstars. I like Vladi. I like, I like Rowdy. Um, I'm not that optimistic uh, because they need beyond that. Besides, you know, the attack, some great pitching. I don't see that happening now. Uh-huh. So, again, when you look at the predictions, they're not high up the list. Uh, despite the fact I would love to see them do much, much better. Um, and, and so... Uh, unfortunately, they may look now great, but you know it's a very, very long season. Right, we are right in the beginning of that. So by September, I think uh, they'll be like the bottom part of the East. Well, okay. Well, it uh, so certainly wouldn't represent too much of a change for the past few years. As long as it's entertaining and fun to watch, that makes whatever wherever they end up a lot more acceptable. Professor Elizer, thanks very much for joining us this morning. It was a pleasure to have you on. And let me commend your article at theconversation.com entitled Pandemic Moneyball, How COVID-19 Has Affected Baseball. Odds to my listeners here in Vancouver. Thanks, Remy. My pleasure. Professor Remy Elitsur, a mathematical professor from financial analysis from the University of Toronto today. We're talking work locally here with the founder of a company called Work, W-Y-R-K. Serge Dollywall is with us. Serge, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about Work. How long have you been around and what was the, the driving concept to get it started in the first place? Well, work is a genesis of another company that's been around for about 15 years. So we're using a big chunk of their research and their development in order to launch work itself. Okay. Um, the genesis of it was sort of sitting in a boardroom one day going, 
what's the biggest problem employers and workers face? And it's, it's connecting with each other. Mm-hmm. So we have algorithms that will actually match people with work um, in, in such a manner that you don't have to search for work. The work will find you. If you're qualified and you have the time at that slot, the work app will actually ding you and say, hey, John, or in this case, Sterling, hey, Sterling, I have a job for you starting at, on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock till, say, 6 o'clock. Are you interested? Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is say, and it will tell you how much you're going to work, how much you're going to make and where it is and all that stuff and, and, and how, how well received that particular employer is as far as ratings are concerned. On all you have to do is just accept or decline. Ah, and of course, I get that buzz on my phone, on my app, because I have identified myself as being eminently qualified for that job position that's suddenly available, thus the buzz on my phone, right? Yes, in one case. But in other cases, it could be something that is entry level, so you have no experience in it, but you want to try something new. Okay. So, so I, I you- guess... I'm sorry, sir. You were talking about the uh, the uh, the ability, uh, or perhaps the problem, or one of the bigger problems is the ability of employers and prospective employees to connect. And I would imagine, if anything, the pandemic has exacerbated those difficulties because, of course, connecting is 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 something that's well, it's kind of being discouraged or has been off again, on again for the last year. So this is this, talk about an an idea whose time has come is what i'm saying here well interestingly enough we were going to launch this back in last april like 2020 uh-huh. and we held off until now um, as a result we were able to actually work in a lot of the implications of covid19 and the impact of covid19 in that yes people need to connect and people have dispersed people have moved um, people are looking for different things to do um, so yes, the time is right. So is this a reflection of the gig economy as much as anything, Sarge? The 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 notion of uh, you take on a uh, you get a call. You could, here's a, here's a week's work. Here's a day's work. Here's a couple of months' work. Is that it, it, the idea being that you, it's just sort of piecework along the way rather than uh, career stuff? We're approaching it from both perspectives. We're okay. looking at, let's say you've got you've got a couple of part-time jobs, and that's really what you're using to make ends meet. We can help you supplement that. So, you know, if you're working 10 hours a week somewhere, we could potentially add another 10, maybe 20 hours. If you're looking for something more permanent, um, this is a op- great opportunity for your prospective employer to see you in action and hire ah, of you. Of course. Yeah. Uh, if they like you. And and since you're not committed to us in any way, shape or form, we do not expect a, fee, a finder's fee or anything like that. We actually encourage that employers hire their people because we want our workers to ele- be elevated to a level where they have the comforts that everybody is looking for. You know, the home, the picket fence, the 1.6 kids. Mm-hmm. That's our objective. That's our primary objective is to elevate the hourly worker to a point where they are comfortable. Ah, so now how do people from both ends of the equation, Sarge, how do employee or prospective employers become, do you join work.io and, and how does it go for, for people who are looking for work as well? 
is we have two uh, two buttons on our website. One is okay. for workers. One is for people looking for workers. And there is no cost to register. The only time a cost arises, and it's only for the person who is actually getting the work done. So the worker never pays anything. Um, is when the work is actually done. Oh, I see. Okay. So in that sense, in that sense, you're, you're like an employment agency where a person who finds a job for one of your employer client just goes to work and starts getting paid the, uh, the, the fees for connecting the employer to the employee are absorbed by the employer. Correct? Exactly. So okay. when, we, when, when you accept a job, that's going to pay you $20 an hour. And that's one of our other objectives is to make sure that you are getting paid well as well as can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our, our cut, unlike the employment agency, our cut's going to be very small because it is purely automated. There is, there is limited intervention by work staff other than interviewing people when they register on the platform. Okay. So we, we are talking to every single person that is registering on our platform and literally putting them through an interview so that they are what we're looking for in a quality perspective a worker. So they are, they are quality people that we're looking for. And if right. there are any registrations, any certificates, anything like that, those are all verified beforehand before they actually register on the platform. Unlike many other platforms where you just register and, and it becomes the responsibility of the person who's going to hire you to make sure you have the qualifications. We're actually making sure of that upfront. Right. So like, like an employment agency. So we're, we're sort of a, a hybrid of both the employment industry and, and the gig work industry where, you know, Craigslist ads have been put onto an app where you go search for work. Sure. All right. Interesting stuff. Well, it, it's, it's brand new too, isn't it? Extremely. <laughs> well, we wish you considerable success. It's a great idea and uh, I hope it works for you. The address, friends, if you're interested in checking this out, is work, W-Y-R-K dot I-O. And uh, that's, that'll get you started. There are two buttons as you looking for work, workers rather, or looking for work. Pick one and uh, get going. And our, our thanks to Sarge Dollywall, the CEO of Work. And a thumbs up and good luck, Sarge. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. A pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. Kathy Woods is Deloitte's Canada's national uh, team leader when it comes to the workplace and the workforce and is responsible in large part for their newest report entitled Building the Future Ready Workforce. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the program, Kathy. Good morning and welcome to CKNW. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by a future-ready workforce, please. Sure, it's pretty straightforward. It's just meaning that if we think of ourselves as individuals, we are ready to tackle the challenges that are coming in the future. And if anything we know, COVID has certainly brought to life some of what those challenges are, whether it be um, being able to work in a remote location, um, working virtually, collaborating when you can't be with people, or whether it be some of the more uh, technically oriented skills like using technology differently, um, integrating and working with technology side by side, um, all of these things. And, and that applies to us as individuals, and uh, it certainly applies to our organizations, whether they're in the public or private sector as well, making sure that their people are ready for the future. 
Yeah, Kathy, I'm curious uh, just uh, uh, how much you think the changing dynamic of COVID-19 will permanently change the workplace of the future. Hmm. It's clear. uh, In my mind, it's clear it will permanently change the workplace of the future. Uh What is clear, though, is exactly what that change will be, I believe, is yet to be seen. We We are learning as we go. But for sure, it's not going to be the same. Right. Well, and of course, and and the big word for the past 13, 14 months, and you've used it, I'm sure, more than I have, is pivot. We've been out of necessity. We've had to pivot. We've had to change our approaches to a lot of things. And I think that suggests perhaps uh, elevating the workforce with a degree of flexibility, perhaps, Kathy, previously unimagined. We've done rather well, all things considered, don't you? Well, I think we've done uh, incredibly well. I'm a glass half full person, so I'd like to be fairly optimistic about where we're at. You're right. um, We have had to pivot. I'm not sure I've used that word that much, but maybe I will. And I think that identifies uh, one of the ways for us to tackle getting ready for the future and building the skills we need for the future. And that is by thinking about some of the capabilities that we as human beings have that endure regardless of what changes. And so that ability to be resilient so we can pivot is an example of one of those. Right. And on your on your website, uh, when uh, we got poking around doing the homework for this interview, we discovered things like 75 percent of organizations expect to source new skills and capabilities by reskilling the current workforce. And, and that could mean up to a billion people needing to be reskilled in less than 20 years. That's a rather massive assignment, don't you think? It is a huge assignment. It's also a fact of life. I mean, I think I'm about to send my daughter off to university, in fact, to UBC Okanagan. Uh-huh. And uh, I, the way I look at it, she's going to learn some amazing things uh, in the four years she's there. Many of them will be technical skills. But the extent to which she'll actually be able to use those technical skills in the years um, immediately upon graduation, I think, remains to be seen. The half-life of a skill these days is anywhere from two and a half to five years. I mean, it's changing remarkably quickly. So the key is to learn how to learn and as organizations to learn how to create opportunities for our people to learn constantly in the flow of what they do every day. And that's uh, that's kind of exciting from the point of view of the worker because I'm I'm very lucky, Kathy. I'm I'm in in a situation in a position where uh, I get to come home from work literally every day, going, "Wow, I learned something new today. Had a great day." And that doesn't happen in everybody's workplace, but it can happen. And the fact that employers are looking for ways to make it happen, I think, is quite uh, quite positive. I think it's really positive, and, and you hit the nail on the head. For companies, employers, to find ways to allow people to learn every day. And so we need to rethink things. We don't have to be providing huge, big training programs. There's still a place for those. Sure. But how do you allow people the opportunity for quick moments of learning on the job? Um, and some of that still comes from learning from others, Um I'm sure I could learn a ton from you if I walked into a, a radio station. I, you know, what do I know about it? So mentoring, apprenticeship, those kinds of things, as well as using technology to help us learn when and where we need it. 
Now, it's interesting you would mention that whole mentoring process because that if, if, if employers, and to a lesser degree, but still a significant degree, employees too are, are noting that one of, the, one of the things they miss most about the workplace, and there are lots of things they don't miss at all, but one of the things they do miss is the opportunity to mentor. Employers appreciate it even more, bringing new, younger workers into the, into the workforce and having senior staff around around to uh, help them into in, into the business and and learning the process without that uh, proximity the human contact that mentoring implies um, we are lacking in a certain way and that that part of of the workplace I think is, is something a lot of people are looking forward to absolutely and and so I think there's a couple of things to think about if you go back to your earlier question about how is the workplace going to change after covid Mm-hmm. We know for sure we're going to be working virtually a lot more, but we will absolutely be going back into the office. And one of the key things to think about is how do we use our time in the office? So I think it's really key for organizations to create the opportunity, one, for a hybrid way of working, but then two, for using the workspace, the physical workspace when you're together for things that really matter, like learning from other people like collaborating, like that problem solving that has to happen when we're together. And so you're, you're absolutely right. Um, people are definitely wanting that and wanting more of it. I think the final part of it is we can, we can still do it virtually. So let's, mm-hmm. let's be sure that we don't uh, stop doing it, even though we can't physically get together. Talking about the future of work and building the future-ready workforce with the National Workforce Transition Leader, Kathy Woods from Deloitte, joining us from Toronto today. Kathy, in your report on building the future workforce, you talk about a four-part framework which you developed to help organizations, uh, well, get ready to overcome the obstacles of today and, more importantly, be prepared to to deal with what's coming down the pike in the future. Can you go through those four points that you've identified as being uh, really beneficial in terms of priorities? Would love to, Sterling. So I think the best place to start, now you can tackle this from any one of these dimensions, but, but the best place to start is to actually step back and say, what do I think my organization is going to look like in the future? Okay. Most, uh, many, many companies come to us and say, what do I need for the future? What are the future skills? What are the most important things? And they want the answer right away. Yes, mm. we know there are, are lots of skills that are going to be important, but what, what each organization needs is actually going to be different. And it's much better to step back and say, and actually reimagine the future for yourself. So that's the place to start. Rethink the work that you're going to do. Okay. The second place to go is then to say, you want me to keep going or? Yes, please. No, on definitely. I'm, I'm just uh, nodding in agreement orally. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Excellent. Um, the second place to go is to then say, once you've figured out where you think you're headed, what is that going to take from a skills and capabilities perspective? Um, and, and actually start to look at, all right, what do we have in the organization today? What skills do we think we can grow and develop? And what ones might we need to actually buy or borrow from other types of workforces? Think right. about um, like the Uberizing of your business. What might that look like for parts of the organization? 
um, sort of great being ready, story being ready to one. farm things out. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, in, in terms of uh, just on that second point, uh, it not necessarily then including or expanding your workforce completely to include all of the positions you might need. You might expand the workforce to a certain point beyond which you'll farm out the rest of the work to subcontractors, that kind of thing. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's one way of doing it. Or if there's a skill that you need in your organization that you don't have right now and you need to access it quickly, or maybe it's a skill you don't think is going to last very long that you need, that's a way you can farm it out to subcontractors. Gotcha. Okay. Um, All right. And thinking very creatively about, about how you set up the work. Okay. Let's, uh, let's carry on through the other two here. Okay. So once you've sort of figured out that you need to, um, you need to build some new skills, then you actually really need to start, start to do it. And um, a couple of ways of looking at that. First of all, um, I think identifying those skills that are enduring, that it doesn't matter whether they're, um, whether we're in a technology revolution or whether you're using AI or whether you're back and, and just solving problems at your desk, these are the skills that, that we need no matter what. And they're things like curiosity and creativity. Um, these are, are, I mentioned earlier, the enduring human skills. Mm-hmm. Um, think about the people skills. How do you build relationships? How do you collaborate? No matter what, these are going to be important. And, and to the point earlier um, that you made about pivoting, the sort of um, almost emo- emotional skills like being empathetic, being resilient, being able to deal with challenges and setbacks. So one of the things you can do as you start to upskill your workforce is to actually perhaps not upskill, but look at the skills differently and identify who are those people who have those skills, who has what skills and deploy them in different ways. Make sure that your people, people are aligned against those places that re- require a lot of collaboration. Then the second part is to just start creating learning opportunities like we talked about before. We call mm-hmm. it place learning in the flow of work. So um, if I need to learn something, uh, I can grab five minutes of training just before I have to go do, say, a, a tough performance review and I want to know how to give feedback. Um, or I'm seeing a lot of the uh, you know, oil and gas companies, the mining companies where you need to learn something out in the field. They're giving people iPads and they can just uh, look at the pump that they need to fix and they can press a button on their iPad and see a video about how to fix it. Those kinds of things, right in the flow of what you're doing. Interesting. Uh, and then just, finally... Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no. Finish it off because I have just a question that goes back a few points. So let's just finish this segment off. And finally... All right. And finally, um, modernize the learning strategy is what I call it. But, but simply put, I think let's the parts of the business that are close to the, closest to the work being done and closest to the needs, let them be part of creating the learning and how that's going to happen. You still need central training organizations, central learning functions. They're really important, mm-hmm. but making sure that they're really connected with the people in the field, with the business leaders, with those who know exactly what need, what the needs are so that the learning again can happen more readily in the flow. And that yeah, was my final com- point. 
Yeah, the, uh, this company, the company that I work for, Chorus, and we're a big one, uh, is, is very good in terms of offering uh, learning assistance. We have Chorus University. We have all sorts of training seminars, and you can tune in for a webinar once a month to do this. And so there's an ongoing sort of uh, training regimen. And, and all of us know that if we need some, some supplemental information, the resources are there. And I guess that's what you're trying to encourage a lot of other companies to do, too, just to be a uh, resource ready so when those questions arise it's not a huge uh, waste of time trying to track down the answers exactly that's exactly right. that's a great example and i think yeah i should be proud that you've got that kind of setup um so that you can just go get what you need when you need it uh, and what one of the things you highlighted there is it sounds like what i would call a hybrid approach so sometimes you're going to be on a webinar Sometimes you probably are just jumping onto an intranet or a learning management platform or a learning experience platform where you can grab what you need. And sometimes it goes all the way back to that apprenticeship or mentoring approach. So I'm guessing it's, it's, it's very hybrid and lots of different ways of learning. And that's why, and that's why it's fun for those of us doing the learning because it's never static. You're never always going to the same source from the same boring person, if if that happens to be the case. And there's a variety of, <laughs> of of sources of information, and so it's it's constantly uh, you're constantly feeling refreshed as you get educated. I wanted to ask you about. You said you know some of these company clients come to us and they say Deloitte. Um, tell me uh, what sort of skills my outfit is going to need in the next five years. And you say they want that answer right now. So that suggests two things to me. One, they're letting you do all their thinking because two, they're biz- too busy uh, designing their product or, or or selling their product in the marketplace to worry about the, uh, the, the employee requirements that they're going to have going forwards. In other words, I don't think some of, the, some of them are thinking enough for themselves. They're relying on you, the subcontractor, to do their thinking for them. That's what you do, but you know what I mean? Wow, now that's a loaded topic there. Um, <laughs> I, so I think what you're highlighting is um, businesses are, are typically or have typically been focused on, you know, driving the financials. We, we tend to be a fairly, you know, uh, commercial world where we look at that. But what I think that what I think organizations are starting to identify is, wow, we are in a human era. So, yes, we need technology. Yes, we need innovation. Yes, we need uh, new products. The way we get all of that is, is by humanizing what we do, by focusing on the people. Mm-hmm. And, and because they haven't necessarily put all of their energy towards that, they're just looking for help. Sure. So um, one of the things I would say for sure is we will never do it for them. This is not something that you can have Deloitte or any other outside organization come and do completely for you. Um, but you can certainly get people like Deloitte to help you with it and to sort right. through it and to put people at the center. So that's the point. That's the whole point of this of this report, and you do it every year, but this one is Building the Future Ready Workforce, uh, subtitled Unleash the Potential of Your Organization and People. You're encouraging employers to, to, to really be more independent-minded, to do their thinking, and to, to develop more of a long-horizon perspective, especially as in the course of this report, you also go on to predict that according to the World Economic Economic 
forum, more than a billion people will need to be reskilled in less than 20 years. That's a that's a lot on employers in a relatively short period of time, isn't it? It is a lot on employers, but it's also on ourselves as people, as employees. 90% of the people we surveyed believe that they are going to need to to continue to reskill every single year. Yep. And so I think that um, this, this comment that you made about, um, you know, about the challenge of it, it's, it's on the employers. It's also on us. And we as individuals can take the same approach that you described Chorus doing, which is there's tons of information available on the internet. How can you go use LinkedIn learning? How do yep. you use YouTube? Lots of stuff that we can do ourselves to help fill that 90% um, that we say we need to, of us who need to reskill ourselves every year. But if the opportunity is now, I believe Canadian companies, we need to jump on it. And we as Canadians need to jump on it because we have a huge opportunity to lead the world in the way we innovate. Love that glass half full attitude too, Kathy. It really does matter a great deal. Thanks so much for taking uh, some time out of your Sunday to join us here in Vancouver. And uh, good call on uh, sending your daughter to UBC Okanagan. Good call all around. (laughs) Kathy, thanks for this. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. There's Kathy Woods in Toronto. She's the National Workforce Transition Leader for Deloitte. And you can find the report, Building the Workforce of the Future, at Deloitte.com. Here's a story you may recall having heard in the past couple of weeks. It took place uh, in the Ferry Creek area, just north of uh, Victoria. Uh, Anti-logging protesters, uh, they were blockading a forest road, an access road, and they got an unwelcome surprise. Not from the forest company, not from the police, but they uh, came from... uh, the local First Nation, whose leaders made it very clear to the protesters that they, uh, well, they are, are not welcome. The blockade was not appreciated. They said this First Nation has always harvested and managed our forestry resources, including old growth. Uh, we like it the way it is. Go away. And that was not the first time it's happened, but it was an an, an an ugly surprise for many of the blockade uh, protesters. Here to talk about this and the notion that all First Nations think alike and are automatically uh, co-optable for ecologically sensitive groups is Chris Sankey. Mr. Sankey, is uh, we've been chasing Chris for a couple of weeks and we finally tracked him down. He's in Prince Rupert today. Mr. Sankey is president and CEO of Blackfish Enterprises. He is also an economic advisor to First Nations councils and is a former elected council himself. Chris Sankey, I'm glad we found you. Good morning and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us, Chris. Uh, this story coming to us out of Victoria is only a couple of weeks old, and it's certainly not new, except that it hadn't happened for a while. Uh, did you recall the details of the story? Were you surprised, by the way, when you heard the details? No, not at all. Uh, these groups tend to show up uh, in, in these protests. Um, I've always said to everyone that uh, if it's not uh, oil and gas, if it's forestry, if it's not forestry, it's fish farms, it's uh, it's just the way their funding model works. The right. more they and get from interest groups, the more they protest. And, and why why do you think it is so automatic, Chris? And it's a big mistake that uh, and is, it's made more frequently than perhaps we hear about. But why do you think it's so automatic that these protesters assume that the local First Nation will automatically be on side with our point of view, no matter what that may be? 
Well, I, I, I believe that uh, it's a false narrative that goes out. Um, unfortunately, it hits it, a lot of the a lot of that narrative hits the mainstream media. What uh, the general public doesn't hear is that there are First Nations that are in favor of economic development to so they can manage wealth and not prosperity. All of us have the goal of managing prosperity for our people. Uh, and the other thing to that is that uh, you have interest groups that continue to to pay a lot of money to get these stories in the media. Um, and a lot of the times, if not 99% of the time, you never get to hear the majority of the Indigenous people that are for development, responsible resource development. So it's a, it's a lot of blocking of who gets to market first, whether it's fish, forestry, oil, gas. Right. Uh, it's always someone. Yeah, Chris, I, I think the first manifestation of this on a national scale to the point where people right across the country sort of sat up and went, really, was the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, when they were talking about uh, punching it through from Alberta oil fields to the coast here in Vancouver. And again, it, it, so those who were against the idea uh, saw that, of course, it was going to cross many territories of many different First Nations on its way to, uh, to the coast and uh, twinning the existing pipeline and so on. But it was again, it was the, 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 it was they tried very quickly to make the point that this will never succeed because First Nations are opposed. And they just put a period after that. And, and it, it took months, Chris, months for the, the real truth to come out. And that was that along the, co- the entire r- length of that pipeline, many, many First Nations group had signed on with agreements to a allow the the whole uh, work and, and, and uh, construction phase to take place on their territory, but also economic cooperation arrangements where employment would be guaranteed and certain economic benefits would flow, not just in the short, but in the longer term. That took months for us to understand because the message at the, at the top end was all the First Nations are opposed. This will never go through. As you now know, that was completely uh, false and untrue. Uh, everybody along the route uh, signed on uh, for the benefits agreement for the project to go forward, uh, with the exception of a couple on the coast that hadn't reached a deal yet. Uh, look, like at the end of the day, um, Indigenous people, Indigenous communities want to see responsible resource development. Sure. And what, is, what has happened is that a lot of these interest groups, uh, what they do is they tie themselves into specific community members which is a smaller fraction of the overall populace of the of the community and they make it seem like we are all against resource development in particular the the trans mountain pipeline project i mean as you see in that case it's completely not true it was a small group uh i believe they're called tiny house warriors Uh, in fact they too were asked to leave the territory because where they were protesting was not the territory of the said first nation so it's uh, it, it, for me as an Indigenous person who's seen this time and time again, who's in fact been in the middle of it all, um, it's very frustrating because at the end of the day, the Indigenous communities, the people are the ones that are suffering from it. Yeah. They're the ones who, who pay the piper at the end of this while, while a select few uh, get paid to do this. And it, that's not right. And I believe the governments need to start doing something about this because it's disrupting the flow of revenues back to the community, back to the province and back to the country. 
I, I wonder why it is, because you're you've been on the receiving end of this a lot, Chris. I wonder why it is that so many of these of these protest groups are so comfortable with the assumption that First Nations are automatically on our side. Why why do you think it is that they think they know how you think? Well, first of all, it's, it's uh, when I view and hear this stuff, it's quite ignorant. It's, uh, you know, ig- I would say ignorance is bliss. But why they're so comfortable is because there's big push for reconciliation. And these mm-hmm. interest groups have clung on to that. And so when we talk about reconciliation, we talk about free prior and informed consent. Uh, but a lot of uh, our, not only just our people, but the general public, they don't understand that process. Free prior and informed consent doesn't mean you get 100% veto. What it means is that when the First Nation is negotiating with industry, uh, what, what, at the end of the day, what they have to come to the conclusion on is that they were, uh, they were satisfied with the process to which was negotiated within their respected territories. So whether that means they get 10 out of 10 uh, wants or they get 5 out of 10 as long as they're satisfied with the process. That's what free prior and informed consent means. Now, add reconciliation to that, all of a sudden, uh, these groups think that Indigenous groups uh, or Indigenous groups automatically assume that First Nations are going to get a veto on everything. Well, that's right. not, not true. If that was the case, it'd be almost impossible to have any sort of economic opportunities for our people in this country. So then, uh, I, again, I, I'm just, I have, I have a, it's kind of a, a really top down attitude, uh, that suggests that they, the, that protesters simply know better because, uh, they, they, uh, obviously hold the moral high ground. Uh, and when you stake that out, then you are inter- in, in immediately superior to everyone else's interests. But even from that perspective, it's pretty, uh, you say ignorant. I think it's pretty arrogant as well. Well, yeah, look, these groups go around saying that they, they stand with Indigenous group in solidarity. Yes. Well, that's not true. They, they only stand with us when it suits their economic needs. They, don't, they only stand with us when they control the narrative. And what they do is when, when the cameras come around, they push our people to the front lines. So they're not only are they hurting that community, they're, they, I mean... I don't even think they realize they're actually hurting our people when they do that. They're the very people that are standing in these blockades. I don't think those individuals realize just how damaging it is to their reputation and to the greater good of the community. They're, they're completely being used, and I have no problem saying that. I've seen it time and time again where after they're done, these protest groups leave, and they leave our people that they use to put in front of the camera right. all to their own. They're, they're, they're no longer useful to them. So they just push them aside. Uh, and I, I hope that someday that our people start to realize and understand that this isn't about the, uh, the environment. Now, that being said, there are indigenous people like myself who do care about the environment. We want of course. reserves to open. So then, Chris, uh, if uh, I, I'm glad you went to reconciliation because that seems to be the sort of catch-all excuse. Uh, well, you know, uh, we have to listen to the First Nations, especially when they don't want the things we don't want because we owe them a debt of reconciliation. So let's not build the pipeline and call that reconciliation because they don't want it either. That's an odd way to deal with reconciliation, don't you think? Well, 100 percent, you know, that's, I mean, that's the, the word reconcilia- reconciliation itself isn't just about economic development. It's about taking right. care of our social well-being, 
So taking our care of our education, our community with infrastructure, uh, clean drinking water. I mean, there's just so much that encompasses reconciliation. You know, it's a, it's a complex and difficult uh, uh, process. Uh, it's a lot of years in the making, and there's a lot of hard people working both in government and Indigenous communities and industry to make that a, a, a reality. And that's what's happening in this country right now. And a lot of people that are having a hard time understanding it, it's about uh, a revenue-sharing opportunity right. so that Indigenous communities don't have to keep relying on government for sole source revenues. So when you think about, uh, you know, BC hydro lines, uh, existing pipeline corridors, uh, what's happening now is that Indigenous communities are getting an opportunity to negotiate the throughput in those pipelines and and hydro lines to to start sharing in the national revenue. And I I think that's a great thing. I think that's a great step in the right direction. I mean, uh, if people only understood um, the limited budget we have in order to feed our communities, you have to understand there's over 600 communities uh, across this country who rely on one single source for the most part. And those that have gone into economic development have multiple sources of, of revenues to help sure. build their communities and build capacity. It's a great Interesting. direction. Chris Sankey is on the line from Prince Rupert. Mr. Sankey is president and CEO of Blackfish Enterprises. He's a First Nations economic advisor and is himself a former elected band counselor. For which First Nation, Chris? For Lands, which Lands in my language, it means Island of Roses. Okay, and that's a Prince Rupert area band then? It is. It's a, the whole Prince Rupert area uh, bordering line Haida Gwaii. Uh, north to Alaska is the Coast of Shan Territory uh, oh. of Lambs and Metlakala. Chris, when we did our homework trying to find you, and we've been tracking you down for a couple of weeks, our, we've got to the first, uh, the our friends at the McDonald Laurier Institute who know you well, uh, who uh, eventually made the connection for us. In the process of that, Andrew and I found out about something called the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, it's a, it's a group of community leaders and their communities, representation of about 70 First Nations now. Um, it's around uh, economic opportunities that they're spearheading. Uh, just recently, the First Nations Project uh, Reconciliation uh, linked up with a coalition, linked up with FNCI, uh, First Nations Climate Initiative, which consists of Metlakatla, Lakolams, Kitimat, and the Nishka. And it was around looking at responsible resource development. And, and the premise of that was to, to look at how do we get to net zero and, and to build these opportunities, whether it's oil and gas or forestry or fish, how do we do it better? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a fantastic initiative. It really highlights uh, just who we are as Indigenous people. When you combine modern technology with science and cultural uh, knowledge, um, some very good things can happen. And that, that table and that group is clearly um, breaking down barriers and clearly demonstrating it can be done. Indeed. Uh, Chris, uh, your neck of the woods uh, has uh, been sort of touted as a, an LNG, uh, a port of the future. Uh, there are, are still outstanding issues regarding the development for liquefied natural gas to export to the world from Prince Rupert. Uh, it is said to be of uh, benefit to many uh, in the community and in the area, including obviously First Nations. What's the status of that file this, this weekend? 
Well, I mean, there's a lot of talk uh, right now with regards to potential development uh, in, within the territories. Um, as far as I know, they're still in discussion, uh, looking at ways to, to bring that or bring projects to fruition. Um, as you probably already know or gather that uh, if there is any projects to succeed, the only way it can be done now is if it's Indigenous-led. And that's for all resource projects. Um, I think it's important that... Uh, communities that the country understands that when operating in respective territories, uh, it, it's, it, it's important to develop relationships with those communities right. and let those communities that are, that have these opportunities in their backyard lead those processes. Cause at the end of the day, the economic opportunity will not only benefit the said first nations that where the project is being proposed, it's going mm-hmm. to benefit many other Indigenous communities and, of course, the province and country. Now, Chris, a source of some mystery to some British Columbians uh, on the LNG matter has been the, the dispute in, within the First Nations group themselves. There are hereditary unelected chiefs who are opposed to the notion, and there are elected councillors who are in favour. Uh, and the, from the outside, this conflict looks to be unsolvable for one and kind of curious for another what's the status of that conflict internally this weekend well look at the end of the day um, it's extremely it's a it's a complex system and process and for the outside world to look in it'd be very difficult to comprehend or even understand it you bet. dates back ten thousands of years it's, i mean the years ten thousands of years of uh, of this system uh, and what I'm gathering now and, and is what we tried to do when I was elected was to how do we bring the hereditary system to work closer with the uh, elected body. Mm-hmm. And I've always said that I believe there could be a play for the hereditary system. And I've always said that they could work as a Senate. They could come together, but that's going to take a lot of time, money and resources. Um, it's a very complex issue. Um, there's a lot of debate on who has what name, and it, it's very challenging. My hope is that one day that's resolved so that both the elected body and the hereditary body could come together under one voice. As such, the Pachida First Nation, uh, as you saw a letter come out, uh, a letter that was written both by the hereditary leaders and the elected body. Um, that's a clear example that when the hereditary body uh, comes together with the elected body, some good things could happen. Indeed. And now that that's happened, like, I mean, first, the, these protest groups need to respect that and move on with life. All right. Are you confident, by the way, that somewhere uh, in the not-too-distant future, Chris, the issue around in and around the LNG terminal and its development in Prince Rupert will be resolved within the First Nation? I'm, I believe so. I, I think so. I think that the elected uh, uh, chiefs and council, in our in in in, in our case, it's it's mayor, uh, will will come together. I believe that uh, I, they will find a path forward. I have confidence mm-hmm. in our leaders that they'll be able to get there. Um, as you know, it didn't happen overnight, and it doesn't happen sure. overnight. It takes a lot of confidence uh, within the community to see that the elected body is there for the greater good of the community. And their mandate is to look at all projects, whether they agree with them or not. And sometimes when, you're in, sometimes when you're in this position, you have to make difficult and complex decisions. And it's really hard for people to understand that sometimes. 
But at the end of the day, I know they are thinking what is in the best interest of the community. Interesting stuff. Chris Sankey, I'm glad we, uh, we, we took as long as we did, gave me a chance to find out a whole lot more about how to go at you. Uh, thanks so much for making yourself available to us. And I'd love the opportunity to speak to you again going forward. Absolutely, for sure. I really appreciate the time, Sterling. And uh, like I said, I've always said, we're stronger together, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. When we work together, just some amazing things could happen. Uh, a rather startling revelation in the past few days in the House of Commons on the part of the government of Canada or the people of Canada learning that uh, our government says it only learned just in this February that Canada's visa application center in Beijing is managed by Chinese police. That is the same month the Globe and Mail reported the arrangement. The government of Canada has trusted its visa center in Beijing to a police-owned company since 2008 and has been required to conduct due diligence screening during renewals of the contract in subsequent years, including as recently as 2018. The government acknowledged its lack of awareness in documents tabled in the House of Commons in just the past few days. Uh, here to talk about this is uh, Margaret McQuaig Johnson, who is a senior fellow at the Institute of Science, Society, and Policy at the University of Ottawa, and also an advisory board member to the Canada-China Forum. Margaret McQuaig-Johnson, good morning and welcome to our program. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us, Margaret. This is a bit of a, an eye-popping revelation. Not so much, well, I guess a couple on two points. One, that our visa center has been subcontracted to an agency of the Chinese police, which in turn is an agency of the government of China, and uh, all the security implications that go with that. Is it safe to say that since 2008, anyone who has applied for a visa at the Canadian embassy in Beijing has had those activities reported to the government of China, also in Beijing, simply by using Canada's application system. Well, that's very possible, and, and it's really shocking. And, and it gives us some, some faith in investigative journalism that the globe would have been able to uncover this when the government didn't. And if they hadn't done that, we would all still be in the dark about it. Um, you, you mentioned the, the uh, regular renewals after this had been set up in 2008. As, right. Um, and, and, you know, you can see that what, what might have been done is they would go in and take a look at what was happening. Was the contract being um, uh, exercised by successfully getting people through the system and, and doing it quickly enough and so on? And, yes, on the face of it, you could see that it was happening. What you don't see is the back door. Um, and we've talked uh, for many years now about the Huawei back doors yes, and, and the risks of that. But, you know, there, it sounds like there would also be a back door in this system. And if you think about it, why on earth would the Chinese police be providing this service if it weren't to get access to the information in the system? And, mm -hmm. and then the second question is, what are they doing with that information? Well, and there, there's the really spooky part about it. Uh, and this, it should be noted for the record, Margaret, this, uh, co the contract was first awarded in 2008, and that was during the era of the Harper government, correct? That's right. And it, it looks like it may have been part of a privatization 
process, you know, reduce the cost to the government and let the private sector do it. Uh, but uh, uh, and, and they, they did actually um, engage a global company uh, to undertake it. But it, then that global company um, subcontracted it to this police organization. Uh-huh. And no doubt that that's a requirement that the Chinese government has placed on uh, this global um, private company. Well, listen, I found this, too, when I was getting ready for our conversation today. I found this. uh, It's been out on the Internet for about two months. Quote, it's a very short paragraph. Quote, the government of New Zealand says it has known from the beginning that a police-owned company was behind a visa processing center in Beijing, an arrangement defended by Western governments, including Canada, but criticized as shockingly naive by a prominent scholar of Chinese overseas influence. Would you agree with the assessment uh, 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 of the uh, observer? Yeah, I mean, this is, it is shocking. And, uh, and you know, it, it, it sounds like Canada knew, but now we hear they didn't know. And you would think that in the uh, regular course of consultations with New Zealand, they might have mentioned this in passing as an odd and, and a bit concerning development that this Communist Party organization uh, with the, with the uh, police uh, is part of this. And we also learned that they take a lot of the staff uh, into this office from the Communist Party school. So sure. the accountability of these staff members is not to the visa center and to the, the people of Canada. The accountability no. is to the party. Absolutely. And by the way, interesting that you would mention New Zealand and, you know, sort of behind the scenes conversations. And New Zealand is also a member of Five Eyes, are they not? Yes, they are. So we would have had discussions in turn in, in terms of uh, backdoor uh, penetration by the government of China into the business of G7 countries through uh, spying approaches of all sorts, including po- possibly Huawei and their 5G network. That Those discussions would have taken place. So if we're talking about our security and infiltration of our security by the government of China, who's trying it from all sorts of angles all the time, why wouldn't we, they have had a conversation with us about and you know that visa center that you signed up for you know that's run by the communist party too that surely would have come up that's right and we really have to be concerned about people going through this process and what it means for individuals in china who are trying to get to canada i know a number of people who are currently going through the process and i've let them know about this and they're now very concerned as to whether they'll be able to leave the country at all and is that simply because the the government of China, A, knows that they're trying to get out perhaps before they're willing to uh, discuss the matter? And so they see this as um, a, a, a negative uh, behavior. That's right. These people are not uh, telling others. They, only their immediate family know that they intend to leave China. And right. so you know, there's a process um, to leave the country where you have to have special permission uh, to leave. And uh, um, it's, that's not the, the same system in Canada. We can leave whenever we want, and we don't need a special certificate to show that we can leave. But the Chinese do need that. And so, you know, that can, they can be banned from leaving. 
And I suppose it also, you were talking about the, the privacy, the invasion of privacy the, and the massive uh, amount of documents and information they now have as a result of running the show for, what, a dozen years? And and I, I guess not only the privacy of people in China who might be trying to leave, but you also have to worry about uh, Chinese expats living in Canada and, and what, uh, what uh, surveillance may be taking place on them. Yeah, that's uh, that's an issue as well. I'm, I'm sure that the Canadian government is right now trying to figure out how to get out of this contract. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we know that they've been uh, very quiet on the China front. They're trying not to poke the dragon unnecessarily. Um, and Beijing would likely react with great anger if we dropped the visa contract, now that we know that it's run by the police, it would be a loss of face to Beijing, and -hmm. it would also be a loss of the access to the Canadian data. Um, And But really, I think we need to bring this function back into the embassy uh, to keep it under Canadian control. Yeah, and you you appreciate... Go ahead. This reminds me also of, of a similar thing that happened last year, when there was a Chinese company called NukeTech that won a competition to install and run X-ray scanning technologies in Canadian embassies around the world. And it was the National Post that that revealed that. Mm -hmm. Again, good journalism. And uh, and that was a state-owned company. And when, when this was found out, uh, well, you know, the, uh, they won the competition out of seven companies that applied um, because their price was 25% less than everybody else's. So you have to uh-huh. you have to consider, okay, what's their motive for pricing it so low? Um, so the, a review was done of that contract, and uh, the review showed that there was a risk that uh, with that technology in the embassies, China would have had access to the IT systems in all of our missions abroad. Yes, And so they decided to reject that company. So we really dodged a bullet with that. Well, it was certainly a close call and almost too close a call. And and ultimately, the decision to cancel the contract and move on was made under pressure, too, wasn't it? Yes, uh, certainly once the news was out. Um, there was a lot of pressure, political pressure, and, and, and a lot of controversy in the press. Uh, the, the government really had no control, uh, no, no option but to drop the contract. Um, and I think it shows that Public Service and Procurement Canada needs to work much more closely with Canadian security agencies because mm-hmm. they hadn't been informed of the, these contracts. And so they need to review each of these before, uh, before they move forward. Talking China with Margaret McQuaig Johnson in Ottawa. Margaret is a member of the Canadian International Council and on the advisory board of the Canada-China Forum. Margaret, a form of, of, of the uh, poll after poll after survey, no matter what the source and who's doing the surveying, shows us and has consistently shown us for the better part of a year that up to 80% of the Canadian population is dissatisfied with our government's stance on China. 80%, five, four out of every five Canadians unhappy with the way our government approaches China. The new president of the United States took very little time to declare China as the biggest threat to his country's future. We don't seem to be able to come to that conclusion. So what is, what's the impediment? Why is the government of Canada so reluctant to develop a spine? 
Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, one is that uh, there's a lot of uh, profits at stake for our companies, and uh, the government doesn't want to risk uh, the profits and the jobs of uh, Canadian companies by poking the dragon. Um, mm-hmm. Secondly, there's a big overlap between um, the companies and powerful Liberal Party players. Uh, Jean Charest, Jean Chrétien, John Manley, um, they've all been very prominent in these letters to the, to the government that they should just send Meng home. And actually, mm-hmm. if you think about it, it's to the credit of the, uh, of the government that they haven't caved, that they have consistently talked about sticking with the rule of law. Right. But um, we have seen all those trade measures taken against us, and, and we've seen the Michaels um, kidnapped, and we've seen four other Canadians given uh, sentences of execution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is, uh, and, and in, the, in two years, we saw no consequences back to China, no retaliation um, back from Canada. Uh, we've had a lot of suggestions for what the government could do, like uh, level uh, Magnitsky sanctions on Chinese government officials, yes. um, send home the Olympic athletes who are training, um, uh, review our, our membership in the Asia in, uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, so all of that uh, has been ignored. Um, and uh, th- so those are a few of the reasons why there haven't been consequences. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a follow-the-money guy. So back to your original point, Margaret, about one of the main reasons that the government of Canada is so reluctant to take a stance against China is because of the dependence of some parts of Canada on jobs relating and, and, and companies who do big business with China. Is there so much money involved that the that those concerns or the concerns of, of state are uh, diminished simply by economic realities? Well, it's a big economic reality, um, although not as big as, as the, uh, the government sometimes presents it as. Um, we, our trade with, with the U.S. is more than 75%. Our trade with China is about 4% of our exports. Right. Okay. So, and, and yet it's the second biggest trading partner with Canada. So, um, so there is uh, a lot of, at stake in terms of jobs here in Canada, as well as um, uh, some of the joint ventures that Canadian companies have set up with China. They've right. really been victimized in those. I've done a major study of Canadian technology company joint ventures in China, and I've started saying to companies that they should look at the the amount of their investment in China, and if they can't afford to lose that overnight, they should start to diversify away from China because Mm -hmm. uh, it's crippling, as we've seen with several canola companies. It's crippling if they lose that business overnight. Right. And of course, there's the other uh, in terms of a massive economic influence. Look at the amount of money that's just flowing through and across the campuses of Canada with respect to research and development grants, foreign student fees, all the rest of the China has nothing but money when it comes to extending its influence. They bought half of Africa in the last five years. Uh, they're quite determined to spend whatever it takes. Uh, I'm just wondering, and, and the last question to you, because I'm fresh out of time, 
Uh, are you uh, at all convinced that somewhere down the line, Canada is going to actually harden its position towards China as the United States is in the process of doing? Yeah, actually, I've seen a couple of uh, positive uh, trends, and it's just since the election of President Biden, where we had uh, we joined with the U.S., U.K., and EU in um, bringing Magnitsky sanctions on officials in Xinjiang for the genocide of the Uyghurs. We passed a, a, or led a, a, an amazing initiative called the Declaration on Arbitrary Detention of 61 countries all uh, opposed to this kind of kidnapping of citizens to hold them mm. for ransom. And and so I think, um, you know, the, all of those are good measures. But then we also saw the, the Canadian government trying to block the uh, 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 Halifax Security Forum from giving an award to President Tsai to, of uh, Taiwan. Yeah, and that How kind of undid all the good press that they were getting from these other measures. Exactly. Margaret, I'm fresh out of time. I regret that because I'm very much enjoying the conversation. I am very grateful for yours this morning. Thank you for making time for us. And I'd love the opportunity to continue this conversation at some point down the road. That's great. Thanks a lot, Sterling. Our pleasure entirely. There's Margaret McQuaig Johnson from the University of Ottawa's Institute of Science, Society and Policy. Ms. McQuaig Johnson is also on the advisory board of the Canada-China Forum. Time to welcome back the folks from Gateway Theatre. Barbara Tomasic is the Director of Artistic Programs at Richmond's Gateway Theatre. Barbara, good morning. Good morning. It's good to have you back. We haven't spoken to the folks at Gateway Theatre for a very long time. How How is everything going, Barbara? It's been several months since we last talked, and I know we're going to talk about a really interesting new twist to the plot that you're offering up in a couple of weeks, but how's it been going for the past few months for you? Uh, thanks for asking. Yeah, I mean, as I'm sure you know, it's been challenging time for theatre because we can't have live events, which is completely understandable but um it's been going it's been going well we've been pivoting the everybody's favorite word right now and, yeah. and offering some online activities lots of educational programs for families and communities um but there's definitely hope on the horizon right now we're we're slowly and tentatively planning for next year to have some live events so it's it's, the hope is nice. It's nice to feel. And we're really excited about this new project coming up. Yeah, so. uh, well, we'll talk about that in a second. But uh, just, just uh, finishing off on, you just talked about hopefully planning for projects and events <laughs> next year. So does that mean then, Barbara, that this fall uh, is not likely to be, even with 50 folks in the venue, uh, a, a reality? Well, we're planning our first, hopefully, what we're planning is, for some outdoor activities this summer, which is sure, great. Okay. With the That's camps exciting. and stuff, right? Yeah. And also possibly some uh, some music outside. We're exploring using our outdoor spaces. And then we're, we're planning possibly for 50 and under for, for the holiday season. Okay. So that would be our first live inside event. Um, well, here's so, hoping that happens. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we are really hoping. It's, it's been an interesting time just not knowing and trying to plan for something we really don't you know, know what the future looks like, but it's nice to have hope, I think, for everybody. Indeed. Now, yeah. take a moment and tell us, Barbara, please, about mad practice, sanity skills for <laughs> crazy times. It sounds wonderful. Isn't it? Yeah. So um, 
Mad Practice uh, is a, a mental health Zoom meetup hosted by J.D. Derbyshire, who is an incredible artist, uh, creator, and performer. And she was slated to do her show Certified at Gateway last season. But, of course, okay. we weren't able to do that. Um, <clears throat> J.D. is, some people might know them from theater sports, uh, but they're also a writer and creator. And this Zoom meetup is for people, for anybody, um, May is Mental Health Month, and so yep. we really wanted to bring mental health into the light. And so this is a place where people can meet up, um, and JD is going to take them through about 90 minutes of talking and experiencing and laughing and sharing stories and exercises on how to, how to work with your own mental health around creativity, but just around day-to-day life. And what I know about JD from seeing their show is, there's such a, a respect, but also sh- they have such a um, comedic perspective and an open and vulnerable perspective on mental health from their own experience. And right. so we're really is, excited about that. Barbara, is it is it performance only or is it designed to be interactive at one point or another during the performance? It's, it's actually designed to be interactive the whole time. There's no performance uh-huh. acti- activity. So it's a Zoom meetup. Um, and it's a pay what you can activity and people, it's more of a workshop. It's more of an educational experiential piece. We were really feeling like artists and our community needed a place to be able to talk about how they were doing. This has been a challenging time, but also to be able to do it in a, in a fun way with somebody who's really experienced and explored their own journey. Well, uh, you know, the, just the title, Sanity Skills for Crazy <laughs> Times. It's something we could all use a little of, a little polishing. Even if we think we have sanity skills, a little polishing goes a long way sometimes. Barbara, not a lot of time left, but I, I want to take a moment. Tell us about the summer camps, Act, Dance, Create. Yeah, so our academy has uh, in-person summer camps in the month of July, uh, beginning at the, they're a week long. And uh, they're full-day camps, so all ages, um, acting, musical theater, and we also have a sensory-friendly workshop as well. Um, and everything is on our website, uh, www.gatewaytheater.com, under mm-hmm. Academy. And we're so proud because this year, the Academy is the only in-person programming that we've been able to offer. and. Parents and, and kids have just talked so much about how it's been really a mental health saver for kids, but also for parents to have their kids to have somewhere to actually go and just play and create in a really safe way. So classes are reduced sizes, and uh, it's great. We're really, really do happy they, to be able to. Do the classes take place at the theater then, Barbara? Yes, they do. They're at the theater, okay. and they're socially distant still, which, is, which is, uh, has been an adjustment, but has been working really, really well. Interesting. Lots. Of, it's a great mm-hmm. idea, and, and it's a very encouraging for well people who need the, those uh, s- sanity skills uh, <laughs> and the kids who need a little relief from the people who need sanity skills. It would all harmoniously happen with the <laughs> seminar, the webinar with uh, uh, JD, and also an opportunity to send the kids off to summer camp for a week. Uh, gatewaytheater.com, friends. There's lots of details on the website. Barbara Tomasic, thank you for joining us again. It's great to hear from you again, and uh, we'll keep in touch, okay? Thanks, Sterling. You take care. You too. There's okay. Barbara Tomasic. She's the director of artistic programs at Gateway Theater in Richmond. And yes, it is gatewaytheater.com. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.